Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Authority of the King. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 to 17, as we join Dr. Newfeld for a message entitled, He Bore Our Diseases. I've often marveled at the contemporary portraits of Jesus. See, most often, Jesus is presented as caring and loving and inclusive and non-offensive. And so if people today, especially in religious circles, if they object to someone's viewpoint or behavior, one often hears people contrast this to Jesus, who would accept and love everyone. After all, did he not accept lepers and Roman soldiers? The adulterous woman was granted grace, as were tax collectors and gluttons and sinners. Jesus allowed a sinful woman to wash his feet, and and Jesus attended parties with sinners, which, by the way, he did. Many often assume that the mission of Jesus was a mission to break down social barriers and get people of vastly different cultures and viewpoints to accept and to welcome one another. I mean, after all, what's the point of the story of the Good Samaritan if it's not surprise, surprise, that outcast Samaritans are actually good people after all? Now, of course, the problem with all half-truths is that they are grossly misleading superimposed against this amazing grace of Jesus stand the awful warnings that he utters almost with every breath. Consider the warnings in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. First, Jesus warns anyone who calls another a fool in anger, that this person will be liable to hellfire. And then he warns anyone who lusts after a woman that he will have his whole body thrown into hell. And then he says that if we don't forgive our enemies, Our Father in heaven won't forgive us. And then he describes hypocrites, those who do religious deeds to be seen by others. Then he describes people whom he calls dogs and says, don't even bother offering them what's holy. And then if that wasn't enough, he says that the gate is wide that leads to destruction and many are on it, implying that he thinks the majority of the earth is on their way to hell. And then to add emphasis, He says that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, the image of an eternal place of burning always lurks at the edge of Jesus' teaching. Not everyone who calls him Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, he says. Rather, many who think they're spiritually fine will suffer the full shipwreck of their lives at the great judgment. The Sermon on the Mount contains at least seven distinct warnings of hell, of judgment, and eternal torment. Jesus, and by that I mean the real Jesus, the the one who actually existed, constantly referred to hell. I know most contemporary preachers would find him overwhelmingly offensive here and would never talk the way he did. But he did talk that way. But again, as I've said before, with all half-truths comes an inescapable distortion. So if you must know, there is in Jesus both a man of grace and welcoming of the most unworthy of people, but this image of Jesus must be supplemented with Jesus, the man who is constantly speaking about hell and warning about hell and describing the terror of hell. And then we come to Matthew chapter 8 to 11, where the teacher of the kingdom becomes the great king of the kingdom, the the king with authority, 
We watch Jesus healing a leper and then with a single word has compassion on a Roman centurion and heals his servant. And it is right here that we see the coexistence of of these two themes, unbounded grace and warnings of wrath and hellfire. So let's read Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 to 12. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So please notice the two images. The first is outer darkness, and the second is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So let's try to understand both of these images. In verse 11, Jesus describes the great banquet. He's comparing the coming kingdom of God to a banquet, just like the great end times banquet that Isaiah the prophet described. So listen to Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. See, in this image from Isaiah, we're we're called to imagine a, a large outdoor banquet at the top of Mount Zion, the very place where the temple once stood. The kingdom of God has come, and the elect of God are gathered in and invited to come and feast the final victory of the great king. It's night, but the weather is warm and lovely. Great mammoth blazing torches surround the banquet scene, and they're so bright, they make the scene at the banquet exquisite, dazzling, pristine, awake with light. Sitting there gives an amazing feeling. It's beautiful and splendid. It has dazzling light surrounded by the darkness. And as you sit at the table, you find yourself amazed at who's there. Yes, it's crowded out with Old Testament saints, but it's also crowded out with the most unlikely of people, Europeans, Indians, Chinese, Koreans, Africans, all embracing and fiercely and passionately loving the God of Israel. And that's what Jesus saw in the faith of that one Roman centurion. He had called Jesus Lord and had expressed his confidence that whatever Jesus said or commanded all came with the authority of the God of Israel. And that's what Jesus saw in that man's faith. He saw the fulfillment of what Isaiah saw. People from every nation and tongue at the great end times banquet feasting on rich food on Mount Zion. In the face of that one man who believed, Jesus saw our faces reflected in his. But there is a sober side to this. While the outcast leper and the Gentile Roman soldier believed, the sons of the kingdom did not. Now that phrase, sons of the kingdom, is a reference to the physical descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel. See, they are the sons of the kingdom because they are the natural-born inheritors of the promise made to Abraham and then to, to Moses and then to David and to the prophets. But Jesus has already noticed that whereas the Roman centurion had grasped who he was and had an extraordinary faith in him, the sons of the kingdom as a whole would in the end reject him. And according to Jesus, they will be thrown into outer darkness. Now keep in mind the image that we've been given, great night banquet, blazing lights around the table, but outside of this banquet there is no light, it's it's pitch black. Jesus says the sons of the kingdom are thrown into outer darkness, and that gives us the idea that they had wanted in, but they have rejected the king of the banquet. 
and it's the king that rejects them as traitors. So you notice the parallel of this statement to the later statements Jesus makes that are also recorded in Matthew. So for instance, Matthew chapter 22, verses 11 to 13. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or listen to something very similar in Matthew 25, verse 30 and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, you have a similar scenario. We have someone who thinks he or she belongs, and then they're discovered, then they're seized, and they're bound, and they're thrown from the banquet of light into the place where there is no light, into the place of darkness. So Jesus is saying, you don't get into the banquet because you want to be into the banquet or because your rightful place is at the table, you get into the banquet because the king of the banquet welcomes you there. Now, to the thought of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth is an image that should be quite recognizable to Bible students. Consider what the Old Testament says. Indeed, Psalm 37 verse 12 is a great example. It says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. Or Lamentations chapter 2, verse 16, speaking about the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem, says, All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, We have swallowed her, as this is the day we've longed for. See, whenever you have gnashing of teeth in the Old Testament, it's a symbol of rage, of, of hatred, of unbridled anger, of an outburst of fury. You recall the portrayal of the first Christian martyrdom. You know, it's found in Acts 7. And Stephen has been telling the religious leaders that they're like their fathers. They always resist the Holy Spirit. And they're a part of the generation who killed the prophets, and, and that's why they killed the Messiah. And Acts 7 verse 54 says, And when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. And so grinding of teeth is always a sign of rage. Now's the time to place the gathering in your calendar. Join us online via Facebook Live this coming Sunday, September 19th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 7 Central or 8 Eastern for a celebration of God's faithfulness. Be blessed by the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld as we investigate Psalm 138. Enjoy host Phil Calloway of Laugh Again and be inspired and blessed by special musical guest Laura Hastings as we worship, fellowship, and celebrate God's Word together. For more information about the gathering and to ensure you're in the right spot at the right time, visit backtothebible.ca slash gathering or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Join friends and the family of God at the gathering from right across the country for an hour of celebrating God's faithfulness together this Sunday, September 19th. Look forward to seeing you there. When Jesus says that those who are cast into outer darkness gnash their teeth, he means that those who have rejected him are arrested, they're bound, and they're thrown into darkness. 
And in shock and horror, they're grinding their teeth in rage at having been excluded, and they're howling and they're weeping tears of unbridled anger when they realize that they've forever been excluded from that great end times feast. So in Matthew 8, after the healing of the centurion's servant, Jesus is teaching about heaven and hell. He's saying that hell is made up of people who think they deserve to be in heaven, and heaven is made up of people who think they deserve hell. Please pay attention to this. If this day you think you deserve heaven, you will never inherit heaven. Those who get to heaven believe they actually don't belong. They're like Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Mephibosheth is the grandson of disgraced and evil King Saul. Mephibosheth is crippled in his feet, and he can contribute nothing to the kingdom of David. And Mephibosheth, to his everlasting surprise, is invited for the rest of his life to sit at the table of the king of Israel and to eat the finest of food. He's surprised, he's amazed at the grace, the kindness, and the love that's extended to him. And that's what we find with the leper in the early part of chapter 8. And that's what we find in the case of the centurion's servant. In both cases, those who had no place of belonging are brought into the banquet hall. And then laying that foundation, Matthew moves on. So I'm reading Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 16. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. See, here Matthew shows us the healing ministry of Jesus, and in all these cases, he makes no mention of faith. Indeed, on an evening, we learn from Luke that that evening was the evening after the Sabbath, and people crowded around Jesus, and you can imagine him going through the crowd. They've just seen the sun go down on their Sabbath celebrations. There were demon-possessed people there, and the demons are fleeing. Insane people suddenly are in their right minds. And the sick, oh, the sicknesses that were healed that evening, everything from migraines to malignant tumors to, to blindness to people on their deathbeds, everyone got healed that night. I mean, what an evening that must have been with Jesus. Now, we do know that the people of Capernaum eventually rejected him. I mean, they got their bodies healed, but their hearts simply would never come to the faith of that, that one Roman centurion who guarded their town and, and paid the money to have their synagogue built. And with that comes a question. If some people who were healed didn't embrace a notion of unworthiness and didn't have genuine faith, but instead still thought about position and title and worth and the significance of being Jewish, well, what do we make of these miracles here? Well, look again at verse 17. Matthew says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. See, here Matthew does what he often does in his book. He quotes the Old Testament showing how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament promises. So here he quotes Isaiah 53, and, and most of us, I know, know this text. It speaks of the suffering servant, and, and we know that it prophesies the coming of the Messiah. So Matthew's quoting Isaiah 53, verse 4, 
And when he does so, he does so with an understanding of the entire passage. See, in that passage, the servant of the Lord, or the coming Messiah, will be pierced for our transgressions, for the Lord will lay all our iniquities, that is, all our sin, all our rebellion against God, all of our treason against heaven, the punishment for all of that will be placed upon the Messiah. Theologians call that the the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. I mean, Christ would take our place, our punishment would be borne by him, He would be substituted for us, crushed for us, stricken for us, afflicted for us, pierced for us, wounded for us. The passage Matthew is quoting looks forward to the cross. See, but how can Matthew say that the healing ministry of Jesus that night in Capernaum fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy of the substitutionary death of the Messiah? So how can Matthew say that Jesus took up our illnesses and bore our diseases? Well, let's answer that second question first. Sicknesses and sin have a direct connection. That doesn't mean that, that every time you're sick, you've sinned. It means you wouldn't be sick at all if there wasn't sin, both in your life and in the world. And when the great banquet comes at the end of time, when the kingdom finally and ultimately arrives, all sickness will be banished. See, if Jesus died for our sins, And well, then he also died for all of the effects of our sin, and that includes our sicknesses. So the final answer to sickness is is not in hospital operating theaters or in new drugs or, or the advancement of medicine. The final answer to sickness is in the cross. He, in his cross, took away all our diseases. And that brings us to the first question. Why did Matthew say Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy in his healing ministry in Capernaum rather than on the cross? Well, I think the answer is simple. Matthew knows that Isaiah 53 points to the cross, but he also knows that every time Jesus heals, he anticipates the cross. The healings show that this is why Jesus came to die. See, he came to die so that all the miseries that you now face will be rolled back. He heals to give you hope that the day of sin and of rebellion and of its effects, that is, sickness, disease, demon possession, and death, will come to an end. His healing ministry points to the ultimate healing ministry, when at the great banquet to come, blind eyes will see and, and a lifetime of pain is rolled away when weeping ends and when sorrow gives way to unbridled joy. And that leads to a third question. See, does this mean everyone who believes in Jesus gets healed? Well, yeah, it does, ultimately. And some get healed now. And every time someone gets healed now, it speaks to the truthfulness of Christ's cross and the reality of the future promises, when all God's people will forever be free of all of the effects of the fall, all, including every illness and disease. And of course, we know that if you're healed in this life, well, in this life, it's only temporary. Illness will return. Old age will come. Arthritis is going to set in, and the terrifying diseases of the elderly, which decimate every human body, will rage against us until we are no more. So why doesn't everyone get healed now? Well, it's because the kingdom of heaven, even while it's already among us, is not yet ultimately among us. There is something future yet to come. 
But lest you lose sight of it, just watch Jesus heal. He and his temporary present healing is signaling that if he can open the eyes of the blind now, don't you think that he can end blindness for all eternity? And just as an aside, you know, I wear glasses, and I have for most of my life, and they're rather strong glasses, and my eyesight is so bad that without my glasses, I I can't even recognize a face several feet from me. See, I've asked the Lord to allow my glasses to come into heaven for just one reason, so I can lay them before the king and say, thank you for taking these things away from me. You know, some of you think about your hearing aids or your anti-seizure medication or your migraine pills and the wheelchair in which you sit. The time will come when these things are consigned to the junk heap and you will no longer have them again, but you will remember that he in his amazing grace has taken these things away. So even if you're not healed now and someone next to you is, take hope. Their healing points to the certainty that your healing will come to you as well. Place your hope not in your goodness, but rather revel in your unworthiness and place your eyes on the king who who was crucified for you, who bore your griefs and carried away your sorrows, who was crushed for your iniquities and took your iniquities and bore away your diseases, and by his wounds you have been healed. So let's remember the heart of this passage. It's all about faith. If you see yourself as a leper or as the centurion who has no place at the banqueting table, who's unworthy to have Jesus come under your roof and who are bowed down because of your sin, then look to Jesus and say, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. I beg you to view yourself as someone who needs grace and not someone who's worthy because all who need grace find it those who think they are worthy will find no grace at all. John, you have a great series on hell, but I've got to ask you a quick question. So many people are saying, how can Jesus be loving if he's sending people to hell? Yeah, I know. And and by the way, Ben, I noticed you said I have a great series on hell, which maybe some people will listen to that and not agree with that. But I think it is important to speak about hell because Jesus did speak about hell. And many of us have concerns about hell because of that. And I mean, you put your finger on the major concern that everybody has. How can a loving God send people to hell? But I think a loving God is warning us that there is a hell, and that already is a loving act. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Back to the Bible Canada exists to disciple God's people through Bible teaching that strengthens the church and builds the kingdom. We believe the church is essential to God's people, and in uncertain days, your prayers and support of the church is critical as God uses it to advance the gospel. To encourage and equip God's people, we're offering Dr. Newfeld's new series, Lessons for the Church, on CD for free. Request a copy for yourself, a friend, or place it in the church library. Back to the Bible Canada exists to build disciples who know the Bible and serve the church. So we encourage you to stand with your local congregation. Refresh your hearts towards it. Be engaged with its ministry. Extend grace to the saints. By caring for your church, you're loving the family of God. For more information or to order your free CD copy of Lessons for the Church, 
call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.